It's been a busy few weeks here at Social Sci-Fi Towers. Alex had his Viva this month, so we've sadly been unable to record a full episode. Instead, we have a short special episode that we recorded at the European International Studies Association Conference in Sicily. Alex sat down with Georg Lofelman from the University of Warwick, and with the aid of some wine, they had a lively discussion about Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, recently made into a television series by Amazon Studios. As always, you can find us at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com or tweet us at social underscore sci-fi. I'm here with uh, Georg Lippelman at the uh, EISA conference uh, 2015 in Sicily. Uh, we're sitting here with a, a couple of margaritas, uh, uh, no, not margaritas, uh, mitos, mitos. Um, and, uh, I mean, Georg, uh, we, we emailed him to, to have another chat and he said he wanted to uh, have a chat about... Uh, uh, the Man in the High Castle, because uh, it's just been... Uh, is it commissioned by Amazon? Yeah, it was commissioned by Amazon into into a pilot, which um, I understand has now been greenlit for like a whole series um, based uh, based on the book. And um, um, yeah, the, the reason I got interested in is that when they um, showed the pilot, they showed a map of the United States being divided. I should probably say that The Man in the High Castle is basically a counterfactual history or an alternative universe where Japan and the Third Reich... Uh, won World War II, and they basically have carved up the uh, United States. So the eastern seaboard all the way to the um, the Plain States is controlled by Nazi Germany. The the west coast um, is all controlled by Japan, and there's a sort of um, sliver of a neutral zone around the, the Rocky Mountains, and this is the um, scenario. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because I work a bit in you know critical geopolitics and the, the concept of space territori- ter- territoriality and, and the map, and basically that how sort of these like spatial configurations immediately affect you know the, the construction of, of um, reality. And of course, the trick in the Men in the High Castle is there is an alternative history in that universe. Um, the, the Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which is a novel in the original book, but it is a film reel in in the pilot that shows the Allies winning World War II. And um, I think what it really sets up very nicely is the concept of what what is reality, what what can you believe in, and what actually constructs a, yeah. a reality. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's the first time I've read it, so I mean, I, I was quite interested in it. Admittedly, not for the first fifty pages, right? I mean, so you have it's this a slow kind of, burn. It's a slow yeah, burn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's quite. I mean, I've read other Philip K. Dick novels, right? And he does this typical kind of sixties, seventies thing. He's he's taking a lot of drugs, right? You know, so obviously. obviously the thing at the end, you know, it slightly becomes more unravelled, as it were, and you start to get yeah. more of a sense of what's going on. And then it even ends in a slightly ambiguous position of whether this novel is actually existing. You know, is like a alternate dimension or something. Yeah, and, the, and the man in the high castle, you never actually get get to meet him in in the novel. He kind of like stays like in the background. He's almost right, right. more like a like a myth, if if you will, you know, like or like somebody that speaks truth to power, but you actually never get to meet him. There's a plot to assassinate him, but they never get that far, and so. Yeah, you end up with these uh, kind of. I mean, one of the things I like about it, and and I've spoken about this on podcast before, is is that. One of the things that annoys me about a lot of novels is they need a hero, and I, I don't right. like. I don't like that idea, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of books or films where the hero dies at the end, right? Right, and history carries on. You know, uh, we were chatting about Babylon Five earlier. You know, a lot of these things. Actually, the point is to realise that you're not the hero, right? There isn't. I mean, in fact, there isn't a hero. Most of the characters in the in the, in the, in right. the book 
um, which you've said is pretty close to the the TV program and the book are quite similar. I think I think like they did like a very like um, the adaptation stays quite um, quite close to the original. Um, one storyline that they didn't pick up so far in, in the pilot is that in in the book, the Americans, the neutral Americans, make a living out of selling the Japanese sort of fake Americana, fake historic <laughs> yeah. uh, items. So the Japanese, and that's about um, original. Civil War era weapons, for example, yeah, yeah, yeah. which are mass-produced in a factory in the, in the Rocky Mountains. So again, what is real? What is historical authenticity? So the Japanese buy the, uh, one of the Japanese protagonists, Mr. Tagomi, buys a Colt um, from 1865. He believes, which is actually made in 1962 um, in the novel, which he believes to be um, authentic. But then he uses this one to kill two of the agents that. Um, are coming after the uh, the German double agent that actually yeah, helps yeah. them uncover a plot. So, I, I th- thought that was really interesting actually because it had this really interesting uh, twist in the sense that there's quite a lot of the novel, at least repeatedly, a lot of the characters in the novel are tied to the manufacture of fake historical items, right? Right. Uh, replicas, or, you know. But the <laughs> actually, despite the fact that there's pages and pages of characters getting really upset about this, you know particularly the gun, you know, this gun that Mr. Uh, Tagomi buys. But actually, at the end, it works perfectly well, right? And that is to say, okay, it's, it's, it's not an old item. It yeah. doesn't have historicity, which is a big theme in the novel. It doesn't have this history behind it. But he uses it to kill, like, three guys, or you know, whatever. And, and I think that, that is, like, really a theme of both the book and, and the film that um, of what Philip K. Dick's, like, you know, explores in other mediums as well, in other novels, other films, the, the ambiguity, the, the fluidity of, of reality, you know. We can come from this from, like, a Foucauldian perspective that, you know, like, power and knowledge are always, like, bound up with each other, and, of course, there is a power structure in, in this universe, but then there's also, like, an alternative reality that questions this um, power-knowledge structure, which is the, the grasshopper that, that lies heavy, but what actually Philip K. Dick does quite nicely he doesn't even present this as a salvation, you know. Oh, we find the real truth. We find the movie real. We find the novel, and now we can form a resistance movement. And you know, that would be like your standard Hollywood plot: the hero yeah, comes, yeah, yeah. he finds the real thing, and uses it as a weapon. But he actually leaves it quite, quite open in a way. It's almost like there is no better or worse reality; it's just kind of like alternatives that, that play out in different uh, configurations. And um, and another element I think is quite interesting that um, Mr. Gomi he consults the, the, the I Ching I would yeah, pronounce yeah. that right so that's sort of like an ancient kind of like Taoist kind of like fortune telling um, device which of course goes against any kind of like western notion of you know planning you're like master of your own fate and there's a complete different eastern perspective again presenting a different version of how reality is, is constructed and so I think these, these multiple layers of realism and reality in, in, in the book in the, in the film are quite interesting yeah you start seeing I mean the, the use of the I Ching um, in particular is quite interesting because the uh, uh, so in, 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 in the novel Japanese hegemony over, over one part of the United States is also takes place culturally so you have several characters which think in a kind of I don't know if that's how Japanese people think but supposedly a kind of Japanese idiom and, and they use it as a kind of religious thing oh I don't know what to do I should ask the oracle right but then the way it's uh, the novel which is this entire history which is then implied to be an alternate dimension 
in this dimension is laid out entirely using the I Ching. So where in one of, uh, you have these two ideas. One is that it's kind of a personal guidance, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they put the sticks down and they, you know, they read the hexagrams, fair enough. They think, and then they interpret the passage that it points to. But actually the man in the high castle, the author, has laid it out as an objective right. truth for everyone that goes beyond you know, the kind of interpreting history, uh, as, as it were. So you have these kind of tensions in, in, in you know, in, in, on one end, people want to uh, use it for themselves. Mm. Uh, but the the man in the high castle is portrayed almost as a kind of, what we would think of as a patriot. Yeah, and, and I think that's also like quite interesting. In, in my reading, I think um, that the Japanese and, and Japanese culture or Eastern philosophy is actually portrayed as the most... Um, um, sympathetically one and the most positive one versus um, I mean you have the obvious evil which is you know Nazism and, and fascism but also the neutral United States is basically I would say materialism capitalism they are you know collaborating they are not they're actually the Americans in that story are not actually essentially the heroes and I think the novel is also um, a critique of Western culture and Western philosophy uh, in total, and it's being juxtaposed with, with an Eastern way of thinking and, and re, uh, an Eastern perspective, and that actually, uh, I think is a true confrontation. Also, like in, in the book where Mr. Dagomi um, tries through his you know reading of the I Ching to basically move against um, this um, you know plan of this conspiracy of Nazi Germany to eventually like wipe out Japan, but he does. But again, he does do this in a way that it's not this classic confrontation, uh, but it's really more like a battle of, I would say, like a, not like even like a battle of wills, but a, a battle of philosophies, basically, and trying to like circumvent this confrontation. Although then he's actually used to force the gun and kill one of these guys, so even he cannot quite escape this. Uh, well, he ends up being forced showdown. into kind of exactly. He's being forced into it. So you know, he en he ends up not being able to reconcile, not being able to reconcile those two. Yeah. Things. I mean, I mean, I think actually it's an interesting confrontation precisely because, I mean, there's an argument argument to be said that you know fascism or whatever is still within a kind of rational right. nexus, right? Um, in 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 a way that Taoism. I mean, repeatedly he's looking at things and saying there's no Tao, there's no uh, historic way here. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we can we can we can look at at um, Adorno. And um, um, you know the dialectic of the Enlightenment that you know like all these like processes like the industrialization, bureaucratization was like the, the the absolute culmination in in fascism. And I think I think Dick touches a bit like on that in in the Men in in the High Castle. Where he actually says, um, well, basically you know America adapts actually quite smoothly to basically Nazi rule in a, in a certain way, and they also show that in. In, in the in the pilot that um, the 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 hero male protagonist actually turns out to be a spy a double agent for yeah. you know Nazi Germany and he's you know the all American hero that you think oh he's this like resistance fighter that you root for and then he actually turns out to be has completely be essentially sold out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, one of the most interesting things actually was the uh, the guy the the assassin that's sent to kill the author of this novel uh, as a because it's anti-Nazi or whatever is. Uh, Eventually, eventually killed because, actually, not because of any reason, right? It's because uh, his his 
kind of temporary girlfriend or whatever right. has a psychotic episode episode and right. raises him to death in, in, the, in the bathroom in a Denver motel room right so you know it's, it's not portrayed as having reason you know it's, it's not a contemplative act no, uh, no, exactly. It's, it's actually not political at all. In fact, actually, all. she actively, he actively fulfills all her needs, right? It's just this random, random chance. Yeah, she doesn't have really like. Um, I mean, she she is aware of the of the the grass is heavy, and she does want to protect the man in the high class. But the actual act of killing him does not result from that. It results from like I think herself being threatened by him and, and his actions. And um, but yeah, again. Um, I think this, um, it is really not so much like yeah, a, a, a morality tale um, per se, as it really is like, I think each of these characters are being confronted with different you know, realities, different versions of reality that they can accept or reject in the, in the book, in the film. but it does not necessarily sort of even make a moral judgment on, on each of the characters. It's like a very neutral in, 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 in the treatment of all of the characters involved, which is like, you know, they, they are not actually even obviously good guys and bad guys. You know, it's not like Star Wars, you know, there's yeah, like, yeah. like a Darth Vader being mentally breathing through his mask in, in this, in this, um, in this um, tale. And I think the, the evil is very depersonalized uh, almost, which I think is also quite interesting. So is this the... Matt, Matt and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Um, do you know Charlie Mierville? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, he argued that Tolkien was a, a, a wart on the arse of fantasy or something, you know, purely because of this uh, aspect of moral judgment right. that was in, inherent to those stories, right? So, I mean, is it that? So, effectively, it's saying, well, I mean, actually, the entire book with the novel in the book and all these kind of things is saying, well, there's these objective possibilities. I mean, is that what appeals to you when you when you look at that map right mm. you know and 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 you know I, I look similarly at maps in video games or you know right. whatever else I mean I, I think fascination of maps is quite a common phenomenon in in, in international politics right yeah but you know is, is that what appeals to you is this the the slight mm. it's not even a major change right? I, I it's guess, something small I guess I, I guess I, I I come from really from a bit of like a like a Foucauldian perspective that there is like no absolute truth you know that like every like formation of, of knowledge is always like bound up with with a power structure but it is never as much as you want to like pinpoint and fix that you know hegemonic knowledge there's always uh, counter movements there's always resistance so every attempt to like for permanently inscribe something like on a map for example a boundary a space a territory a nation is, is always like a, in the end like a futile attempt because there will always be resistance against your against your attempt to basically um, establish something as, as dominant, as, as permanent. I mean, one of the best examples is, you know, Nazi Germany, the attempt to, like, build, like, a thousand-year uh, Reich that, like, collapsed after after um, 12 years. But I think we, we, we see this, like, in many other aspects in international relations, you know. For example, now the competition between the United States and um, China in the Asia-Pacific, the United States wanting to prolong its like own hegemony, its hegemonic position, moving now in, into a more confrontational position um, vis-a-vis China, China becoming more like assertive in, in the Asia-Pacific, and what is uh, one of the main con- points of contention is again a map. China has put forward this nine-dash line, it's like first island chain is there like territorial, you know, basically right, America does not recognize that, but of course American hegemony 
is not um, as obviously territorial, but it is also a territorial uh, foundation. There's American bases everywhere. So, um, in the end, um, you know, uh, America has this claim uh, they want to be a responsible stakeholder. You know, right, right. A responsible stakeholder of what? Of a system that, you know, the United States and the West have set up in the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and like, China now pushes us against this. So, again, it's competing... Uh, institutions competing uh, knowledges and basically the fight to like each one to establish their own reading of you know territory history politics international relations um, in in all these fields so yeah and this is why this is why I like um, Philip K Dick actually because he doesn't actually choose sides in this like you know manichaean in this like manichaean way he like basically um, presents um, a tale that basically you know each outcome could could always go, you know, either way, and mm -hmm. we should be, we should be, I think, very careful to like put all our chips down into like, you know, one corner because, like, you know, the I Ching can fall in, in each way, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, but I think it's also a reminder in in some ways that actually, uh, I mean, in this book, I mean, probably quite a lot of uh, others, sorry, quite a lot of others of uh, quite a lot of Philip Dick's other books. Um, it's not the characters are revealed to be part of a wider historical narrative right which doesn't happen in the first 50 pages of the book right but they're still fundamental to its carrying out right so it, it, it's it's not um, amenable to intention right this uh, you know so you end up with these different factions of the German government and, and none of them know how it's going to play out right but I mean, in the end, it's some antique dealer somewhere, right. you know. So I mean, these kind of, in in, in terms of the causality of it, you know, the, the kind of hinges become incredibly hard to even the the entire concept, explain, let alone predict. Exactly, I think the entire concept of agency is is quite murky in in the novel. You know, you're never like quite clear if the several protagonists are actually like indeed masters of their own fate, or are they just kind of like thrown into like some like random like chaotic uh, you know um, and context and basically like muddle through the, the best way they can and um, um, yeah I th and again I think the the, the, the I Ching is like incredibly like prominent in the book I mean I don't know like how many times he consults it I mean like, it, Regularly, it's, like yeah, on yeah. pages and pages basically of, of the I Ching I mean you, you basically get tired of the bloody thing after like a while because like it's like oh what actually happens with like all the political intrigue it's completely like on the backbone yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, there we are we consult the I Ching again and like but I think Again, it, it, it questions the, this entire Western notion of, you know, you have a plan, you have cause and effect, you, you can basically control the outcome. And I think that's what the novel actually says, you actually can control the outcome. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, that seems a reasonable place to finish <laughs> if we, we can't control the outcome. All right. Thanks very much, Gail. Oh, thanks, Alex. All right, catch you later.